Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will be from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And that can be found on the uh, Pew Bibles, page 1088. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And the angel of the church in Smyrna wrote, Write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who are Jews and are not. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Good morning. It is so good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It really does encourage us that you're here. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We look forward to growing together as we seek to seek God's will in everything in our life. We've got a lot of good things that have happened. God's blessed us richly. And then some really good things just around the corner. I want to give everybody just a quick, friendly reminder that one month from today will be our Friends Day. And that's always a tremendous day that we really enjoy. But it's also a day that we want to be thinking about who are we going to invite and, and who is it that it would really encourage them to come and be a part of our gathering that day and even at the park that afternoon. And so that's September 25th. Be thinking about and praying about and encouraging whoever it is uh, that you're going to be inviting this year. Also keep in mind, teachers of 18 month through fifth grade, you will have a teachers meeting in the fellowship hall this afternoon at five. We love and appreciate what you do in teaching our children and just a friendly reminder there. Also a second friendly reminder, remember the time capsule deadline is today and that's for a 15 year time capsule. If you wanna bring letters to the church, to your family, both even photographs or any small things that will fit into the time capsule. If you have any questions or concerns uh, relating to this, you wanna beg for an extra day, whatever it may be. Uh, Shannon Buckner is working with this and so you can contact him and if, if you don't know Shannon, we can get you in touch with him. Also keep in mind, as already this morning, the prayers are greatly appreciated for uh, the results of the feasibility study and then a lot of big decisions that are to be made as a result of that. And so keep praying about that, but also note, as you can see also in your bulletin, that September 11th, 18th, and 25th are opportunities. You're not encouraged to go to all of those. It's just an opportunity for you to choose one of those, the 2030 building next door, and be a smaller, more intimate setting for a little more information to be given. Still, there's no decisions made, but the opportunity to give information that we do know, and then for you to give any feedback or concern that you might have. We truly want to seek God's will in this. And so uh, note those meetings and, and come and be a part of that uh, if that's something that would be beneficial to you or you could bring something that's beneficial uh, to the church family. One of the most marvelous creations that God ever made was the creation of the church. If it is so marvelous, and if God loves her so much, 
Would he ever allow her to suffer? The world breaks everyone and some get stronger in broken places. It almost sounds like scripture and strangely enough, it's not. Instead, it's of all things, Ernest Hemingway. But the reason it does sound like scripture is because it's truth. And it's not truth because Ernest Hemingway said it, it's truth because it's truth. God's word teaches us over and over. It's not just suffering that defines who we are, but it's our response to suffering. Are we going to grow stronger? Are we going to have a response that we cave in and we become bitter people or even destroyed people as a result of the suffering? And so with that in mind today, I, I want to ask you, how do you define a successful journey through suffering? How do you define a successful journey through suffering? The church at Smyrna shows us so much. I want to just read one of these, I'm almost tempted to say little cute sayings. I'm not trying to take away from it. But as we read this, it is true, but it's only true based upon your perception of this, okay? You could have a, a perception of this that this would not be true. I just want to read it to you. It says, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. In painful moments, trust God. Do you believe that to be true? If God bring you to it, he'll bring you through it. And if you say, I do believe that's true, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but if, if we were in a, in a small setting, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? He'll bring you through it. What is your understanding, perception, even definition of God bringing you through suffering? When you pray for a, a safe journey and you don't have one, did God let you down? When you pray for recovery from an illness and instead it gets worse, did God let you down? When you pray for relief from a situation that is so heavy and you don't see the relief, did God let you down? Now, you know I'm not saying those things callously. I'm, I'm simply enjoying uh, this study to say, not what I think it ought to be, but what's God's will about this very topic and about the very journey that we have in life that will have sometime not only its share of suffering, but sometimes it feels like it has far more than our share of suffering. With that in mind, and, and this is going to be like lightning fast, but I know not everybody was here last Sunday, and so I'm going to do just a real quick review so that we're all kind of on the same page as we start. How marvelous is the church? Last week we talked about in real estate that location, location, location was so important. And we showed some locations on this earth that almost everyone knows where if you said, oh, my office is there or my retail business is there, everybody would be like, are you serious? I know exactly where you're talking about. But then we see passages that have a location in them that are kind of amazing. Like for example, in, in Revelation, the first chapter, we see a whole chapter devoted to the glory of Jesus. And then you skip down a couple of chapters and you see some of the most marvelous chapters that we have, passages that we have in scripture that describe the glorious throne room of God. That's right. You and I get to glimpse into heaven. 
And so you say, okay, if, if one location is, is going to be about the glory of Christ and the next is going to be about the throne room of God and there's going to be this space in between, what would God place in between? In Revelation 2 and 3, God places some amazing teachings about his church. And these teachings are seven passages where they're actually letters that he writes specifically to these churches in Asia. And as he writes them, we see that there are ingredients in them, uh, that, the elements that make up these letters, and we see that there's seven of them. But I say that, and it's almost like when, you know, we were in English, and the teacher always gave you a rule and then said, but there's an exception. And, and there are exceptions to this. It's not that all seven of the letters have this, but yet this is a pretty good mindset to have when you're reading it to say, okay, I can break it down in somewhat most of these. And so there's that greeting, that salutation, but then there's a description of Jesus that the reason Jesus is described, let's go back one slide. The reason that Jesus is described that way is, is to help that particular church with whatever they're dealing with. Do you get that? Now that's, that's huge in appreciating these letters. In other words, it's not just every time, hey, this letter from Jesus. Something they're going through is why Jesus is described the way that he is described. And we'll note that in a minute. And then for four of the churches, there's, there's uh, commendation, uh, or, or five, or, well, no, there's six of the churches, there's commendation, things that they do well. And, and five of the churches have condemnation, things that they aren't doing well. And then because of that, based on that, they have warnings, exhortation, and promises. Now, when we look at this next slide, we noted the fact last week that uh, Harold Hazlett, back like 45 years ago, wrote a brief sermons throughout Revelation. And one of the points they made that I just thought was really, really a great study. And that was, even though so much is said to each of these churches, he says, each one though could be summarized with such a distinctive note that you could summarize it with one word. And so last week we studied the church of Ephesus, the letter that was written to them. And then we saw, you could easily summarize that with one word, and that word was love. They had lost their first love. Well, this particular church, a very, very young elementary child could read this passage, and if they read it a few times, you could say to that child, now what's the one thing this is about? And I really believe most of them would say, this is about suffering. It really is clear that this is a message about suffering. So join me today as we go into this study on the map. We see where this city of Smyrna is. It's about 35 or 40 miles north of Ephesus. And uh, in the day of which this was written, Ephesus and Smyrna both were, were port towns. And they kind of probably kind of competed for business, but it was very much that kind of town where ships were coming in and out and trade would have been a very much a part of their economy. You need to also note to appreciate this, that the city was made up of a small group of Jews that were anti-Christ to the hilt. They did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and so they intended on bringing grief, persecution into anybody's life that believed that. But a second thing you need to note was that their loyalty to the Roman Empire was of the highest. In other words, the Roman Empire kind of let cities compete to see who would have the honor of building the first temple to whom? The Roman emperor. 
and they received that honor. And so they had the location that you could come and worship the Roman emperor. That's why so much of the persecution that we read about that's on its way, that the book of Revelation is prophesying about, that's a part of why we see this here. And so you can imagine being a Christian where, well, let me just give you two examples of how Jews that hated Christians and, and Romans could work together. Does this sound familiar? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jews worked with the Romans and it ended in death. And really we could go through a few different stories of Paul when he was on this earth. He received persecution because of the hand of the Jews and every now and then they would team up with the Romans and he would end up in, in jail. And, and so, you know, those are stories we're probably a little more familiar with. So with that, with that, now go in and read Revelation and say, wow, this is a recipe where already horrific things have happened and it's probably going to happen again to these people. Join me, if you will, Revelation's the second chapter. I want you to notice Revelation 2 and verse 8 is where we'll begin, which is where the passage began that was capably read a few minutes ago. And notice it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna. We mentioned last week, you always look for context. Is this talking about a heavenly host type angel? Or is this talking about a messenger that was a human being and we believe that it was a messenger that Jesus gave this letter to and he stood and he read this letter. Now notice he's reading this particular letter to the church at Smyrna, not to the city of Smyrna, but to the church at Smyrna. So who were these people? These were the people that were greatly devoted to God. As a matter of fact, there's only two churches that nothing negative is said out of these seven churches of Asia, this one and Philadelphia. And so even though we're going to see that they were going through immense suffering, they were doing so, so faithfully that Jesus did not even have condemnation to bring to them. In other words, Jesus didn't even have something to say, hey, I really, I really appreciate your works, like Ephesus last week, I really appreciate your works, I really the way, appreciate the way you stand up for the truth against false teachers, but I have this against you. There's no contrast there. He has things that he loves and appreciates about them and there's nothing negative. We do not know when this church began, but a lot of folks believe that when you read in Acts the 19th chapter and verse 10, and it says that while Paul was living there in Ephesus, that the gospel spread throughout all of Asia during that time period, that most likely was when the church of Smyrna began. Now, I'd like for you to notice the second thing in this very same verse eight, and we'll continue reading. And I'd like for you to see the description of Jesus. And just based on what you already know and what we've said this morning, why would Jesus describe himself in this way? A hint. It relates to what Smyrna is experiencing at this very moment. These things says, the first, notice it's capitalized S. We're talking about Jesus here. He's the first and the last and then we have more description. Who was dead and came to life. You know, other times when we read, he's the Alpha and Omega. Why is it so important for the people of Smyrna to know that Jesus was the first and the last? Well, he wasn't created in the beginning. We read John 1 and 1, and we see that the Word was there in the beginning. As a matter of fact, we see that all things were made by him. He was the creator in the beginning. So in other words, this would be John's way of recording what Jesus said to them to say this. 
before this Roman Empire ever came about that seemed so mighty and powerful and destructive, I was in existence before. I want you to imagine seeing Rome in that day and time that was so powerful. And I want you to imagine seeing hundreds and even thousands of Christians martyred. It probably wouldn't take long for you to conclude Rome is going to annihilate Christianity. And this is Jesus' way of saying, when everything is said and done, I can assure you of this, Rome will not be standing and Christ and Christianity will still be standing. That was the powerful prophecy back in Daniel, the second chapter, when God gave Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I want to read to you just verse 44. You remember back in Daniel, the second chapter, he told about a prophesying about four world powers and that each one would reign. But then he says, speaking about the fourth power, which was Rome, that that's when the earthly kingdom was going to be established on this earth. And notice how powerful this kingdom is. Daniel, the second chapter, verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. If you would have been living in Smyrna and you did not know, believe, and trust these truths, you would have said, wait a minute. I believe in the Lord's kingdom. I've been a part of it. But if you didn't know this, you'd say, it's going to be destroyed. Look at all the destruction around. And notice this prophecy. This kingdom that the Lord is setting up, it's never going to be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Now, this kingdom of the Lord's is going to break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. When Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last, that is his powerful way of saying to Smyrna, I was around before Rome and I will crush Rome when the time is come and I'll be around after that kingdom has fallen. And my kingdom will never be shaken. It will not be disturbed. Let's go back to Revelation, the second chapter in verse eight. So that's what he meant when he said the first and the last, perhaps. But what about those next two phrases? Who was dead and came to life? Why is that important for the church of Smyrna to hear? That was real important because a part of their suffering that we're going to get to in a few minutes is that some of them will actually have to give up their life. They will have to be martyred in order to be found faithful. Now, remember what we began this lesson? How would you define a successful journey of suffering? Has God been good to you if God allows you to die in the suffering? And so what the church there in Smyrna was going to hear taught to them and what they were going to experience is they were going to experience a lot of Christians dying for the cause of Christ. And so this is a really good description to give them hope. Jesus can say, you know what? I lost my physical life for this cause, but you know what? God resurrected me from the dead. And therein lies our great hope that it's not in avoiding physical death, but it's in living eternally because physical death cannot cease the spiritual life. And that really is an amazing source of comfort. 
Look with me, if you will, Revelation 2nd chapter and verse 9. Revelation 2 and 9. You know, there's a lot more we can say about all this, but we're really trying to get to the end here. Revelation 2 and 9, notice the commendation that he has for them. I know your works. Remember, he knows it because he walks in the midst of the candlesticks. I know your works. And that word works is very general. So is he going to know positive works or is he going to know negative works? Well, he's going to know some negative things, but they handled it in such a positive way that it was a great compliment to them. And so the first thing he says that he knows about them is, I know your tribulations. The word tribulation literally comes from the idea of bearing up under heavy stress. Imagine a boulder that falls on a small object. You roll the boulder off and it's just crushed. Someone else comes walking by and says, how did this break? And you simply describe, you just simply say, that boulder right there fell on it. And anybody's going to know what you're talking about. Anybody's going to be like, well, yes, you have something that heavy and it's going to crush and it's going to break. The word tribulation and used in the way that it's used here comes from the idea of having such a strong spiritual faith that when all of these pressures start crushing down upon you, they press but you do not crush. You do not break. I want to read a phrase to you out of 2 Corinthians. We're going to have a slide here. This is how Paul described his own journey in this time of tribulation, but he didn't use the word tribulation, but he defined it here. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 8, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Paul says, everywhere I turn, I've got a boulder coming in on me, but you know what? My faith, my spiritual journey, it is not crushed. Now, again, I just ask you this to get your minds churning. You know that Paul died, 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. Uh, that's the end of his life being recorded as he saw it coming and he died as a martyr. Now, let me ask you, was he spiritually crushed because his physical life was taken away from him? I would suggest to you that at that time he was still pressured, but his spiritual life was not crushed even when his physical life was taken away from him. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us that just because things are painful, even destructive, does not mean that our spiritual life has to be falling apart. Now notice the second thing in this very same passage here. He knew their tribulation, but he also knew their poverty. Now notice the parentheses, but you are rich. The things that mattered the most, they had the blood of Christ redeeming them. They had the grace of God saving them. They had a family of God that surrounded them. They had treasures laid up in heaven. Listen, we could go on and on talking about how they were rich, but if you looked at their physical financial situation on earth, they were in poverty. Now, don't confuse this with the idea of saying, well, you know, there's just some parts of the world that's poor and, and these were just some of the poor people. They hadn't always been poor. This is poverty created by persecution. They probably were receiving persecution as they tried to go out and sell things and that anti-Christ sect of Jews along with Romans 
the Roman influence that was worshiping the emperor and everybody knew that these individuals believed in Christ. They wouldn't go along with Rome. They wouldn't go along with the Jews. And you can imagine how hard it would be to do business in the marketplace. You can imagine how hard it'd be to go up to someone and say, hey, I'd like to work for you today. <laughs> no, thank you. I don't want your kind working with me. But then that doesn't even take into account the ones that their goods were simply plundered. The ones that their goods were confiscated just because they were a Christian. And you say, does that really happen? Look to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. We're going to read a passage. Don't have time to make a lot of, of, of comments on it. But my guess is when we read this passage, there's going to be some setting here that says, that's right there in black and white. And I never even noticed that before. Are there passages that explain financial persecution? Here's a passage that explains it. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, I'm going to begin in verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, in other words, you, you learned the truth and you began to follow it. You endured a great struggle with suffering. Now, what suffering did they have to endure when they became a Christian? Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulation, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and, you ready? Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. That was part of the persecution that the Hebrew writer wrote about. Knowing, now you, don't you love this explanation? You have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. You think the Hebrew writer wasn't thinking about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount to lay up your treasures in heaven and not upon earth? Have you ever read that in the Sermon on the Mount and thought, but, but what does that exactly mean? Here's one of the applications of it. Are you going to be willing to stand for Christ and lose physical and financial possessions on this earth? And if so, the Lord is saying, well, you just laid up treasure in heaven. What you just laid up is far greater than what you just gave up. Let's continue reading 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. See, this is the idea of where's your confidence? Is your confidence in the earthly treasures or is your confidence in God? If God allowed you to lose most everything you own, like Job, would you still have confidence and faith in God? That's what this is talking about here. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Persevere here so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now notice this again about drawing back. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. What's the point here? The Hebrew writer closes and says, I tell you what, just because of financial persecution, and now we have a lot less on earth than what we did have. Now maybe we're just trying to survive you can rest assured of this. We're going to endure. We're not going to draw back. Wait, 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 wait. Don't take my house. Don't. I'll, I'll deny Christ. Don't. Don't take my I, I'll sin with you. I'll go along your way. Just don't cut my salary. I, 
God, I don't have to stand up for morality. What's the big deal about that? Hey, just let me make my way up in the company. I don't want to be slighted. God has never had a problem letting his people suffer. But his people sometimes have had a problem. That they believe that the earthly things are worth more than the heavenly things. And so whether we're hearing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or we're reading the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 10 or we're reading the plea to the church at Smyrna, you realize that's like the beginning, the middle, and the end of the New Testament. It's all through Christ's covenant. So where does this leave us? Look quickly, if you will, with me back to Revelation 2 and 9. We've talked about the tribulation. we talked about the poverty. But notice that next part. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but at the synagogue of Satan, the blasphemy, if we're speaking evil of the Lord, is usually called blasphemy. If we're speaking evil of each other, a lot of the time that word would be defined slander. And so he says, I know that there are people slandering you. I know there are people that they are uh, destroying your good name because they are following the influence of Satan. And, and we don't have time to elaborate upon that, but just notice those are the types of difficulties they're dealing with. He says, I know your tribulations and I know that a lot of your money and a lot of your goods have been confiscated from you. And I know that your good name and the comfort of saying, yeah, I get along with all my neighbors. It's not there anymore. They're slandering you. He's saying, Jesus is saying, I hear you. I see you. I know the suffering that you're dealing with. So now, do you know Jesus? I really mean this when I'm asking this. Please, please listen. Do you know Jesus? There's a lot of people, if we stopped right here and they didn't know the rest of this passage and say, what do you think Jesus is going to say at this point? There are a lot of people that call themselves Christians. I really believe that they would say, well, now what Jesus is going to say at this point is if you'll just follow me, I'll make sure all this earthly suffering goes away and, and you'll be rewarded with peace and happiness and you'll just have the best life on earth. You don't know Jesus. Jesus never places the great emphasis on this earth. We are the ones that do that before we come to know Jesus. Well, where does Jesus place the emphasis? Look with me, if you will, verse 11. Revelation 2 and 11. Here's the exhortation. I'm sorry, it's 2 and 10. 2 and 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So see, he didn't say it's about to get better. He says a lot of you are about to go to prison and you that you may be tested. We're gonna find out what kind of faith you have. And you will have tribulation, that's that crushing, that burden. And he says 10 days, symbolic there, most likely. But notice, notice the plea, be faithful until death and I'll give thee the crown of life. You could also translate this, be faithful even if it means death. And I'll give you what? Of all things, I'll give you a crown. That's a reward. 
You, you see somebody walking around the Olympic Village and they have a gold medal. You know they won first place in an event. You see someone with the crown of life. You know they persevered and they endured and they counted eternal life worth more than physical life. The Lord says, you're going to suffer. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. A lot of you aren't even going to live through it. You're going to die. But if you're willing to give up your physical life, I will give you a crown that says you've gained eternal life. What an amazing story. And so when he says in Revelation 2 and 11, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear? Do you hear what the Lord says? And, and now notice he says, he who overcomes, and that's the word for victorious. It's the word where we get Nike shoes from. The, uh, the overcomes there is the Greek word for Nike. And, and so he who overcomes, he who is victorious, here's the promise, shall not be hurt by the second death. That is an amazing thing. When we think about later on, Revelation 20th chapter, he reveals that the second death is a lake of fire and, and brimstone. It's there in Hades when, when we die lost. And so he says, notice, if you overcome, I'm not saying I will spare you from the first death. If you will remain faithful to me, the victory is you'll be spared from the second death. We don't get this opportunity many times to read detailed writings to one small group of people and then are able to pick up historical documents, not out of the scriptures, but pick up historical documents that were written just 60 years later about that group. And it's really amazing. Eusebius wrote about 60 years later about the people of Smyrna. And he wrote about the horrific persecution that they were going through. And he wrote about the fact that many of them were being dragged down to the, the, to the open areas, the arenas, and they were turned out to wild beasts. They were laid down on sharp spears or sharp shells. They were tied to stakes and they were burnt. Their back was ripped open where blood and arteries were revealed. We call that scourging. And this is what secular history records just six decades after the Lord said, Smyrna is coming. Now, secular history says that the church began to trying to hide some of the older Christians. And the persecutors found a little boy and they began to torture him and say, Tell us where they keep Polycarp. And he endured until he broke. And he told where the old fella, 86 years old, that had been so faithful in the faith, was hiding. He heard that they were coming for him. He prepared a meal. And when they came in, he invited them to eat. And he sat to the side and prayed. They drug him down in front of the arena. A bloodthirsty crowd was drooling to see an old Christian die or save his first life by denying Christ. And so the emperor cried out, swear by the genius of Caesar. In other words, worship the emperor and I'll dismiss you revile Christ 
and I'll dismiss you. And Polycarp answered, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king that has saved me? The proconsul continued to urge him to deny and threatened him with various types of death. And he interrupted again, Polycarp did, and he says, you threaten fire that burns me for a moment and is soon extinguished for you know nothing of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. But why do you delay? Bring what you wish. And history records that they ran out and they began to gather wood and they put a stake in the ground and they put the wood around it and they marched it to him and they were ready to either nail him or tie him to the stake. And he said, stop. By the same power that I serve my God will be the same power that I hold myself to your stake. And he said a prayer to his God and at the amen, they lit the fire. And the fulfillment of Christ's letter to Smyrna was seen again. Be thou faithful unto death. And I'll give thee a crown of life. Polycarp, like you and I, did not avoid the first death, but he did the second. What did I learn today? My dedication to the Lord and his church must not stop because someone hurt me. Brethren, please, please do not leave the Lord. Do not leave his church and then cowardly exclaim, but they hurt my feelings. You're not serving people. You're serving the Lord and be willing to suffer all for his cause. We must not stop because someone hurt me, took advantage of me financially, slanders me, threatens my life or even takes it. Number two, I learned the crown of life is only offered to those who love the Lord more than they love their own life. And number three, I learned that eternal life must become a greater priority than earthly life. The second death must become a far greater concern than the first one. Suffering's coming. I don't know what shape and what fashion, but there's not a person here that's not exempt from it. And sometimes it may be only because you're a child of God. I want to encourage you instead of demanding your rights, I want to encourage you to humbly give yourself as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This morning, if we can help you in any way move closer to God. We study lessons like this this morning and we're reminded that a lot of us have a long way to go. A lot of us are on our spiritual journey, a maturation, and it's just one step after another. And maybe you're not quite to where Polycarp was, but are you on that path? Are you stay, taking steps forward? Let's all move towards the Lord. If you're ready to become a Christian or be restored, if